We find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 44. I can't explain why we're in Jeremiah chapter 44 uh, today, except that I just sense this is what God would have us do. This is what I sense we we're going to do last week, and the Lord just changed that at the last minute. But if I had to put a title on this message, I would, I would title it, The Lord Lives, parentheses, or does He? Question mark. The Lord Lives, parentheses, or does He? Question mark. The Lord Lives. We know He lives. We know He lives. I love the song. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. I love the sentiment of the songwriter, but probably better put and and more uh, thoughtful would be this. He lives, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives because His Word says so. He lives because His Word says so. My experience is not to be trusted over truth. Truth validates experience, but it is not predicated on it. Truth is truth, and experience is predicated on truth when it's valid, but not the other way around. So he lives because the Bible teaches it. But I have to share with you that in the church culture that we find ourselves in, we've been so immersed in it it was once C.S. Lewis said that you ought to spend a good bit of your time reading books that were written outside the time frame in which you live in order to be able to get out of sight of the time frame and see what the thinking was so you can draw a contrast between what the writer thought at that time and what you currently are experiencing now. Well, there's one book that does that perfectly. And it transcends time. And it's always relevant. There'll never be a time in which it doesn't give us light and understanding, and that's God's Word. And so if we spend our time in God's Word, I appreciate C.S. Lewis, he's a lot smarter than me. I appreciate his last name. But, to be honest with you, C.S. Lewis didn't have it right there. This is what we should spend our time in. If we spend our time in this book, this is transcendent, objective truth. And it will assay, and it will contrast and it will give light to any time frame in which we live because God says I never change the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever God is perfect if he were to change he would be imperfect and so truth doesn't change truth is not subjective truth is not based on whoever Promotes it. It is objective. It is fixed. And it is Jesus. It is the Word of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus doesn't just give truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth personified. That is why when a whole host of people are touching him, and he goes, who touched me? And the disciples say, are you kidding there's people all around you are touching you. No, 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 no. Somebody touched me in faith 
and it triggered their healing. And a woman, simply by faith, touched him and touched him and was healed of a blood disease that plagued her because she wasn't in front of healing. I mean, she didn't ask for healing. She was touching healing itself. That's who Jesus Christ is. Aren't you proud of Him? But here's what we've happened in our church culture, and it has so affected us, there's not a person in here that's not affected by this, not one. And that is this. The church culture in America for so long has made subtle and almost imperceptible changes of drifting away from God's Word to the point that the gospel itself and our practice of it has become man-centered instead of God-centered. The way we promote the gospel the way that we proclaim the gospel, the way that we see the gospel, the way that we perceive the gospel has become man-centered instead of God-centered. I want you to know something, dear ones. Although salvation is for you, it is not about you. It is about the glory of God. We have taken these little changes. I'm going to give you an example. Just this morning, just this morning, how many songs are written in which we sing about God, but we don't sing to Him. I have somebody in my life that poses a great challenge to me, and I find it very difficult to love. I'm just being honest with you. Now, none of you are like that. I know that y'all don't have people in your life that you find difficult to love. But I've had to love this person and bite my tongue over many years. And this person does something habitually gets on my nerves, and that's this. They'll talk about me in my presence as if I weren't there. Have you ever had anybody do that to you? You have? I mean, it offends me. I'm just going to have to tell I'm just being gut level honest with you. I don't like that. And this person habitually over years has done that to me. And they just talk about me and have a conversation. And I, and I realize it's a gift. I want to hug this person's neck this morning. Because the reason it's a gift is because it has, it has served as a catalyst in my life. And it's like the Lord just tugged on my heart and said, Son, you do that to me all the time. You talk about me as if I weren't there. I want We're engaged, buddy. I have a relationship with you. I want fellowship with you. Not because I'm needy. It's because you need me. And I derive glory from fellowship that I purchased for you on your behalf and gifted you through my son. But we talk about God. We sing about God. And we do these things, but we don't do it to Him. So worship becomes this. Do you know the most controversial 20 minutes in the church's life? is when they do music worship. And churches split nowadays over music worship. Can you imagine that? When I was, when I was, when I, when, when I, you've heard me share this before, but at the tail end, this was very telling, at the tail end of my time at the previous church we were at, and I felt like God was going to move me to a different fellowship to pastor. I was the associate pastor of this church. And I knew that God was moving on. The senior pastor knew it too. And so I was talking to different churches. And I want you to know, <laughs> almost every conversation I had with them, almost every one of them, it was this. It went like this. I mean, I remember filling out forms. They would give me questionnaires. And the pastoral search team would, and this was their primary concern. Do you like contemporary music? Or do you like blended music? Or do you like traditional music? Do you like choir? Or do you like praise team? Or do you like it blended? Which way do you like it? And they were trying to assess which way so I could fit in. And I'd say, listen, guys, this is why nobody called me. They all went, thanks, but no thanks. I said, you know, can I ask you a question? Are any of you interested as to when I got saved? Are you interested in my personal testimony? Are any of you interested in what I believe about this book? 
Are you any are any of you interested in my convictions about biblical truth? Are you any are any of you interested in how much time I spend in it? Are you any of you interested in my devotion life and what it's like? Are you interested in my communion with God? Are you interested in that? Or are you interested in whether or not I like blended worship, traditional worship, or contemporary worship? I said, you're asking the wrong question. Worship should not be preference driven. It should be spirit led. I get out of here. My question shouldn't be, were you pleased? My question is, Lord, were you pleased? You see it over time. It's just, it just keeps doing it. The, the shift keeps on going like this and 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 like this. And our view is coming, it's coming more and more like this and more and more like this. And so we're now men-centered. And church is about self-interest. Church is about what they can do for me. Church is about how I can be served and my family can be served. It's about me. We have done this for decades now. And we have the weak witness to prove it. We do. We do. I've seen it happen over time, just in the short period of time that I've been an observer and been caught up in it on top of that. And I think the answer in this text of what happened when the, 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 God's kingdom people were judged in the Babylonian captivity. And what happened was, is God raised up a prophet, among others, named Jeremiah. He preached for 40 years. Jeremiah preached for 40 years, and no one listened to him. And the judgment that he foretold was in the midst of all the other prophets who were saying, hey, everything's great. The Bible says, the prophets have offered my people superficial comfort. They've said peace and safety when there is no peace. They've not heard a word from me. They've tried to deliver great news. And I'm telling you right now, the news is not good. And I've got an honest prophet. I've got a legitimate prophet named Jeremiah among them. And he paid a price for telling the truth. And he told the truth. And he said, judgment is coming. God is done with this. And surely that happened. So what happened is, the Babylonian captivity takes place, 586 B.C., but yet there's a small, very small remnant left in Jerusalem. Very small remnant. God always has a remnant. Praise His name. And in this small remnant is what we find. And they're caught up in a question or a dilemma that they won't resolve. And at this point, they give what is an artificial statement to say, Jeremiah... Would you go to God on our behalf and ask this question? Uh, I want you to. We want you to go to God, and when you go to Him, ask Him this question: Are we supposed to stay here, or are we supposed to go to Egypt? That's it. Or do we hang around in Jerusalem, or do we go to Egypt? Well, the truth of it is, and the text reveals it. All the while, they were asking Him, hoping that he would give them the answer they wanted, and that was they wanted, to go to, they wanted to go to Egypt. And they had already decided in their hearts, you get the sense from the text and reading it, we won't read all of it, that they were just looking, hoping that he was going to give them the answer that they wanted all along, and he didn't give them the answer they wanted. But here's the point. In the Scriptures, and you and I have talked about this at length, especially when you look at the narrative of the Exodus, after 430 years of Egyptian bondage, and God uses Moses. Moses, clearly, in the Bible, the Bible says it outright, 
is a type of Jesus. He was a type of Jesus. He was a picture of Jesus. Egypt is a picture of what? The world. And Pharaoh is a picture of the devil who is the God of this world, little g. So when we see Egypt in the narrative here, the application for us is, the question is, do we go to the world? Do we look to the world in order to continue? Does this remnant look to the world for our help? Is that where we go? So if we pick it up in chapter 42, let's go back a little bit. Jeremiah chapter 42 and in verse 2, it says... They said to Jeremiah, Please let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord your God. And by the way, that was an honest... That was an honest... (laughs) Pray to the Lord your God. He ain't our God, but He's yours. Pray to the Lord your God for all this remnant, since we are left but a few of many, as you can see, that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing we should do. And then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard indeed, and I will pray to the Lord your God. He had to remind them of the fact that they claimed that. According to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you. I will keep nothing back from you. Well, true to form with Jeremiah, the kind of man he was. And boy, was he a godly man. I've spent years studying the life of Jeremiah and been... Blessed and blessed today by his life. What did Jeremiah do? Did he give him an off-the-cuff answer? I think Jeremiah probably knew exactly what God was going to say to him, but Jeremiah waited on the Lord. And I'm sure they came. They, I'm sure they pressured him for an answer. Uh, probably came to him every day and said, Jeremiah, you got anything? Got anything? Got anything? And nope, don't have a thing. Don't have a thing. And the Bible says in verse 7 that after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah to speak to them about what they were to do. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord... The, Uh, the God of Israel to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will still remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down and I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent concerning the disaster that I brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand and I will show you mercy that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you but if you say, we will not dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, saying no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall see no, no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell. You see what their expectations is? Their expectations are, if we go down to Egypt, it would be easier for us. I want you to know that there are plenty of Christians, professing Christians, some are real Christians and some are not, who've decided to check out the Christian life and just watch it happen and not participate in it. They just want to sit in the stands and watch everybody else be engaged in the battle and just kind of retreat from it because once you get in the battle, it might mean that financial provision might be scarce. It might mean that you have to pay a price. It might mean that... You have to live, you're going to live a life of non-compromise. And it might mean that the devil's not so quick to line your pocket with what you need or what you perceive that you need. It might mean that there might be want. And so let's just stay up here in the stands and watch things go on. Let's believe believers in parade instead of believers engaged in the building up of the kingdom. Plenty enough of decisions made like that. And that's what they were faced with. They said, Egypt... 
was a type of the world trusting in their own resources, trusting in what the world could do for them, trusting in their own intellect, trusting in their own decisions, trusting in their own strength. Verse 19, The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Do not go to Egypt. And look at their problem. It's in 43, verse 2. We're skipping around, but we just got to catch the general gist of it. All the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, You speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, Do not go to Egypt to dwell there. All the proud men. Another word of saying it? All the men who were self-centered and self-sufficient and said, thanks but no thanks to God, I can take it from here. We have gifts among us. We have artisans among us. We have thinkers. We have doctors. We have lawyers. We are gifted people. We are able to do this. We will go to Egypt. We will connect there. You're a false prophet. You've given us a false message. So look at verse 7. So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they went as far as Tehaphides. Now, all the proud men, all the proud men, our self-sufficiency, our focus on ourselves. Did you know that the earth, we talked about this before, the earth is the third planet over from the sun. Isn't that right? The sun is in the center of the universe. But, based on the history and pathology of men, you think that we think we're in the center of the universe. But the S-U-N is in the center of the universe. And moreover, the S-O-N is the center of the universe, not men. The Bible says in the middle of it, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. That's the verse that's in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 118, verse 8. So what they were going to say is, let's go to Egypt. Let's cut a deal with the world. It's a type of the world. Now the world's mentioned three ways in the Bible. <clears throat> so we need to know what one he's talking about here in order to live the truth that we need this morning. When the Bible speaks of God so loved the world, Jesus and, uh, said in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish <coughs> but have everlasting life that's speaking of obviously the, the, the people the people that populate the world and God loves them aren't you grateful because if he didn't love them he wouldn't love you and I so when we're speaking of world there we're not talking about that we're not talking about people then of course the Bible uses world in the sense of God's creation he spoke and it came to pass it came to be that that we see, that has declares every day that God lives. That's, that's His created world. The third one is the one that concerns us, and that is this, the world system over which the devil has temporary, under the authority of Christ, through the permissive will of God, has temporary sway over. And the world is characterized by this. <clears throat> the devil's the chief among fools. And he's got fools like us who used to follow him. And the basic pathology of foolishness is this. Remember it? The fool has said in his heart, 
there is no God. Now, if you look carefully in your Bible, there is, is in italics, and it's inserted into that phrase, but it doesn't belong there. If you transliterate that verse, it's this. The fool has said in his heart, no God. He doesn't say there is no God. He knows there's a God. He has said, no thanks. I don't want you in my life. I don't want you in my health. I don't want you in my choices. I don't want you in my career. I don't want you in my money. I don't want you messing with my time. I don't, miss, I don't, I don't want you to have anything to do with my children, my family, my anything. I, 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 it's man independent of God that says, God, I know you're there, but I just flat don't want you. That's the pathology of foolishness. That is the characteristic of the God of this age. That is the world that he's talking about here. You go to Egypt, here's what you're going to do. You're going to live as if God doesn't live. That's what the fool does. The fool knows God lives, but he chooses to live as if God doesn't live. That's how foolish he is. God, I know you're there. How do I know? How does the fool know that God's there? Conscience and creation. The two evangelists that speak to every person who's alive. Every person who's alive knows through conscience and through creation that God is. But the fool says, I know you're there, but I love my sin more than I love you. Matter of fact, I hate you. And you really have this nasty way of getting into sinful choices that I don't want to make. So, rather than repenting and turning to you, I want to still make sinful choices. So the only option I've got is to erase you. And I want you out. You bother me. You get in my way. This is what this remnant was saying. You bother me. The very judgment that brought them into captivity, they're going to run to instead of running to the God who's trying to get their attention. You want to talk about a band of fools? Look at Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 26. 44, 26. And look what it says. We're getting somewhere, so hang in there. We're going to draw a contrast. And I would would encourage you to write in the margin of your Bible a verse I'm going to give you in just a minute, right beside verse 20. Six. <clears throat> Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God lives. Now look what that says. He's saying this. You go to Egypt... Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. It's not going to take long. It'll take place over time. But over time, you're going to live as if I don't live. You're going to live as if I don't live. You're not even going to have a profession of faith that says that I'm alive. You know what the world needs to see? The world needs to see us indwelt by a living Lord practicing that life, that the life of Christ is manifest into you and through you and I, and that we proclaim and profess a God who is alive. But if they don't see any life in us, that means we're too worldly and we've shrouded the life of Christ in us and we live as if He doesn't even live. You're unforgiving in your relationships, you're living as if God doesn't live. 
You're holding bitterness or unforgiveness towards somebody. You are living as if God doesn't live. You latch on to that. You're living as if God doesn't live. You talk about people behind your back. You're living as if God doesn't live. Because to talk about somebody, to talk about somebody rather than to somebody, means you're blaspheming the God who made them. It's got to the point where it is the equivalent in the New Testament, and I'm not saying this to put, to put uh, banners on us. I'm saying this humility. But the average church, the average church, if they ever do it, serves the Lord's Supper quarterly. If they ever do it. Why? Because we're so caught up in a worldly orientation. We're so caught up in a man-centered Christianity which the Bible doesn't know anything about. That we live as if He doesn't live. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper in a few moments. And when we do that, you know what we're going to participate in? We're going to celebrate His death, His burial, and His what? His resurrection and the hope of His imminent what? Remember this what? Till I come. He's alive. Did you know that there is only one time in the wilderness wanderings, there's only one record of them participating in the Passover with stale bread. And the rest of the time they never participated in the Passover in the wilderness because it's a habit of wilderness wandering people to live as if God doesn't live. If your relationships do not, and they're not characteristic, and they are not characterized by love, you are living as if God doesn't live. You can say whatever you want to say about Him and do whatever you want to do and make any kind of sacrifices in His name. And you can be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal because if you have not love, it profits you nothing. We sacrifice nothing to live the Christian life. The Christian life is sacrificial. It was born out of a sacrifice. Amen? And the sacrifice doesn't purchase Christian life, but it manifests it. Sacrificial living doesn't lead to salvation. It just gives evidence of it. It gives evidence of it. And we live as if God doesn't live. That's what Egypt's like. Can I tell you something? Listen to this. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. This is straight from the beginning. Go back to Genesis just for a minute. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. I'm going to ask you you a question. In your relationships, in your time, listen, go look. Just start here. Look at your calendar and look at your check register and ask yourself, ask God this question. Does my check register and my calendar indicate that God lives? That's all. I'm just asking you. Does my checkbook and my calendar indicate that God lives? What assumptions would somebody who knows nothing about me, but just knows enough about my profession of faith, what assumptions would they make about the place faith has and Christ has in my life by looking at my calendar and by looking at my checkbook? What would they assume? Would they assume I'm on a pilgrimage? Or would they assume that I've settled in and this is my home? Which one is it? 
I'll tell you something right now. Some of us are so mortgaged to death and so obligated. We couldn't serve God with our money. We had to go look at the fireplace and say, Fireplace, can I give to Christian ministry? And the fireplace says, No, because you got to service me. You got to service me. You got to tend to me. Look at this. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Why were they not ashamed? Both naked, and they're not ashamed. Why is that? You know why? The reason they weren't ashamed is because they didn't notice one another. And the reason they didn't notice one another is because their lives were completely God-centered. So they didn't pay attention to each other's nakedness because they never noticed each other. Their life was completely centered on God. That's why the Bible says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is what? It stayed on thee. And so they were, their orientation was this way. It was completely, it was this way. It was perfectly this way. It was perfectly this way. Perfect. It was perfect. Unblemished. It was so that way that they could walk around naked and not even notice it because our lives were centered around Him. And in the new birth, we have the potential to live that way. I'm not saying we live that way. We have the potential to live that way. Perfect peace. Why? Because He was their everything. He was their everything. And that's not because God just is... An uptight God, it's that, that's the only right way to live. Anything else, if God allows it, is sin. That's why you get the sense of Jesus. Was He loving and caring and compassionate? You better believe it. But I can tell you this. There was one thing the disciples knew about Him. And they knew this. They never asked Him to teach them to heal blind people. They never asked Him to, t- to teach them how to give... Uh, of a crippled man the ability to walk or clean, clean up a blood disease. They never asked him that. But they did ask him to teach him to pray. Because here's what they knew about him. They knew this. Of all the relationships that you have and of all the encroachment on your time, it is very obvious by spending time with you that the one relationship that defines all others for you is the relationship you have with your father. Because you spend an awful amount of time with him. And so therefore, everything that you do that we could ask you to teach us to be able to do is done as a result of the overflow of that relationship. So it would be better if we just ask you about that. Give us some insight about that relationship. Give us some insight about what happens when you often retreat, the Bible says, to a solitary place and commune with God. You know why? Because his thoughts were, I'm not here on my own for my own bidding. I'm here to do only what He tells me to do. I look and see what He does and I join in on what He does because my mind is fixed on Him. I love people. But my love for people is an overflow of my love relationship between me and the Father. That's the kind of Christianity the Bible knows about. That's the kind of Christianity that is not self-serving. The Bible says we're not to serve our own interests. We're not just only, but to look out for the interests of others. That's what it says right there. Count others more significant than yourselves. That's the theme of the, of the, uh, of the school this year. You're going to live as if God doesn't live. I want you to draw a contrast. Look at Jeremiah chapter 44 and we'll close. Please, look at Jeremiah chapter 44 verse 26. In your notes, or maybe in the margin of your Bible, I encourage you to write this. Somewhere in your notes. 
right beside it. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. Now don't go there yet if you don't mind. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. I want you to see the contrast now. This is Egypt living. This is man-centered Christianity right here. Man-centered Christianity is right here, characterized right here. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God lives. Paraphrase, you go to Egypt, you're going to live as if I don't live. My influence among you, your regard for me is going to be so little that you will parade around and live as if I don't live. I want you to know something. Withholding the gospel for somebody, when we have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, is living as if God doesn't live. How is it that we can sit there and listen to the hurt and the pain and the anguish and the confusion and the outright blatant sin that plays and controls and kills everybody around us and remain silent when we know that the blood of Christ will cleanse them. What are you doing? You're living as if God doesn't live. That means that the world has more influence over you than you're willing to admit or care to recognize or maybe this morning it could change. That's my prayer. Is it could change. Many of us pride ourselves from not being worldly by the things that we don't do. Listen to me. That's reductionism. That is not accurate. If we're ashamed of the gospel, we live as if God doesn't live. It's the truth. We live as if God doesn't live. You hear the dilemma? You hear things going on? You can listen to conversations. You can be on the side of them, on the periphery of them, and you can listen to the things that people say, and you just, you just go. Don't you just want to go sometimes and take a, and, and envision the taking a lid off their head and opening up the lid and just taking the Word of God and just planting it down there and say, oh, if you only knew, if you only knew that the kingdom is God is right in front of you. The repentance and faith, your life could completely change in a moment's instant for eternity. I don't know the answer. I know who is the answer. The answer is not a plan. The answer is a man. And his name is Jesus Christ. We live as if God doesn't live. Now here's the contrast. I want you to look at this. Let's pray that this will be characteristic of our lives. Look at Acts chapter 4. Verse 33. The worldly guy lives as if God doesn't live. Checkbook? I can't see God alive in there. I don't see Him anywhere. Hmm. My devotion life? Hmm. My love life? Hmm. I see some unforgiveness, some bitterness. I see some fear that I nurse. It's causing me to become angry and unsettled. But I just don't see any life. Is he alive? He's alive, dear ones. Might as well act like it. Look. Here's a spirit-filled Christian. 
Worldly Christian, oxymoron, by the way. Jeremiah, you're going to live as if God doesn't live. Spirit-filled Christian, and with great power. The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. How about that? You got the worldly guy lives as if God doesn't live. I'm telling you right now that some of us as believers we spend time with one another. If you're going to give an honest assessment, you can't tell any difference between you and the people around you. Spirit-filled believers. Great power. They gave witness to the fact that Jesus is alive. Amen. That was a game changer for them. It should be for us too. I've told you this before. I've said it many times. When I was in seminary, taking a seminary class on worship, and my takeaway the takeaway for that class was something I never forgot. He said, worship in the early church was celebratory. It was celebratory. It wasn't a funeral. It was celebratory. Why? Because of the resurrection. They got in there, started worshiping on Sunday because of the resurrection. And they got in there together and had a party over the fact that Jesus walked out of that tomb alive. Amen? Amen. He's alive. Might as well act like it. And say, Lord, would you ignite a fire in me (laughs) that your son lives, and because your son lives, I live? (laughs) Isn't it amazing? I saw a sign. I saw a sign. I'm not being critical. It's just it was amusing. And you was actually the one that pointed out to me. First Baptist Church of Terrytown, Georgia. Not a big place. <laughs> and in Terrytown, Georgia, at First Baptist Church, it said, we're open. What did it say? We're, we're open Christmas to Easter. Christmas to Easter, not the only time we're open. Get it? Mm-hmm. CEO Christians. Christmas and Easter only. Hey, I'll tell you something right now. Jill said, I'm so sad that Christmas is over with. I said, it's not. I'm going to get up tomorrow and celebrate Christmas and I'm going to celebrate His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And then at the end of the service, Brian's going to come up here and he's going to lead us into doing just that. He is alive! And the question is, the question is, I got a friend of mine who's a prolific songwriter and been writing for years and he's written some standards. And he said, you know what, Lord, the reason you're, he's got a song called my heart is already there. And, uh, and, and the group he's in recorded it years ago. And I told him, I said, man, you had a, that was a cat head biscuit from a girl Lord, and you got this one. He said, Lord, the reason you're letting me stick around here is so that other people can see how much of you is living in me. That's a good lyric. Amen? Because I'm going to tell you something right now. In ministry, when I first got into ministry, I didn't know what I was doing. 16 years later, I still don't. <laughs> But here's what I did. I didn't have anybody helping me. I didn't have a mentor. They just stuck me in the office and said, all right, go to ministry. And I said, all right, let's see. What do you do? Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, let's see. How to conduct a funeral. You know, but, uh, and so uh, 
And so I'm in there, and I just got on my face before God, and I said, God, I want to ask you a question. Please, I'm serious now. This is not tongue-in-cheek here. I mean this. I said, well, I don't know what I'm doing, I, and I, but I know that you called me, and I know you know what you're doing. Would you just somehow or another, just, just in a succinct way, give me something that I can carry the rest of my life in what it means to be a minister of the gospel? And God spoke right to me <laughs> when he got ready to. It might have been 10 days. I don't remember, but it was. I kept asking him. Here's what he said. It's very simple. I need it this way. He said, you point people to my son. That's Christian ministry. You point people to my son. That's what, I'm at. That's what I expect you to do. Don't point people to this church because this church won't save them. And you don't point people to you because you flat can't save them. You'll just confuse them most of the time. You don't point them to this denomination because we were Baptists at the time. You point them to my son. I said, yes, sir. I can go with that. Would you help me do that the rest of my life while I'm on this earth, please? And not point anybody to anybody except Him. Because in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form and you are complete in Him. Amen? Now, we're going to be worldly Christians and be so attached to this world that we'll live as if God doesn't live. Man-centered in our gospel. Man-centered in our church. It's about me. Man-centered in our worship. Forget calling it worship if it's man-centered. Just forget it. Please, let's don't call it that. Let's at least be honest enough not to call it that. Or maybe to call it the worship of men, but not of God. We're in such a state that God says, I can't even stand your sacred assemblies anymore. Because <laughs> they're, they're about you. You know, you know, did you know that it's an actual coined church term, worship wars? Worship wars. And churches split over the style of music they do on Sunday morning. It's going to be miserable in heaven if you wind up in the wrong section. <laughs> oh, this is the blended section. Wait a minute, I like contemporary. And we're going to be wrangling about it? I don't think so. I think we're going to get in there and we're going to be exactly the way we were before we fell. And we're going to be so centered on Him when we know anybody else is there. Amen? Why not wait? Why wait on that? Let's get as close to that as we can get now. And say, Lord, you, are, you, are, you didn't give me life. You are my life. When Jesus Christ gave His life for you, He then gave His life to you. Amen? Amen? And you know what? That's what we're going to celebrate when Brian comes up here. We're going to celebrate the fact that God's Son gave His life for us and then was raised from the dead and gave His life 